Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 58. The Screwtape Letters, Letter 29. Fearless. Friends, welcome to Pints with Jack, your C.S. Lewis podcast, where David, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we are eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. And now you guys know that is not a pre-recorded thing, but it's live every time. <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> Screw it? I don't even remember. Yeah, it was beautiful. <laughs> I just wanted to keep going because I was like, all right, you know, there's no point stopping. It's just a little blunder, but uh, I don't remember what I said. And people do often assume that we have a pre-recorded section. No, nope, we do it fresh every time. Uh-huh. There's always the possibility of failure. Yep, and Matt <laughs> just did it. Well, good morning, everyone. And this is the first episode that we've recorded since the conclusion of Lent and the arrival of Easter, at least for us. Oh, praise God. And you're going to finish some stuff here before I talk, but I've got such updates for you guys. (laughs) Well, I was just going to say that in Byzantine parishes during this season of Easter, because Easter isn't just Sunday. We're now in Easter up until Pentecost. uh, We greet each other with this greeting, Christos Anesti which is Greek, which means Christ is risen. That's how you say Happy Easter in Greek, Christos Anesti. And the person that you greet will respond with Alithos Anesti, which means indeed he is risen. So Matt, Christos Anesti. Alithos Anesti. That was beautiful. You know, I'm so proud of you. I'm, I'm, I, I was reading this a little bit in preparation. I'm looking at this and there's Greek letters, guys. It's like an XPI Sigma, you know, if you know stats, Theta, um, some O with a hyphen and a weird squiggly line. I'm like, what is David having me say here? <laughs> I don't get any of that stuff. But you read it so beautifully. I'm proud oh, of you. Thank you so much. Well, you had said it about five seconds before and I knew you were going to ask me. So I literally repeated it eight times, I think, in that five second window. <laughs> <laughs> well, Marie and I, we spent our Easter in Wisconsin with family uh, and it was beautiful. We got to hang out with our godson because his, his family also came with us. And we had a relaxing time, ate lots of lovely meat and dairy, which I was so happy about. Uh, how was your Easter? Well, first from the technical side, I mean, the spiritual side, absolutely incredibly beautiful. But first, I also, my my sister and brother-in-law with my two nieces came in and it was so much fun to see them. One and a half and two and a half. They're the most fun age. Um, they're great parents. And so these kids are just phenomenally well-raised and so personable and engageable, engaging, engaging. <laughs> And it's just a lovely time, is all I have to say. I, I may just speak Greek earlier. It's okay. <laughs> you get a pass. But I do have an update for listeners because I had one of the most moving Easter vigils of my life. I think it was the most moving one. And it was really the culmination. Many of you have heard my journey over the last six months, nine months, 12 months. We've talked about the pandemic, and I've just been very transparent, vulnerable of just the struggles. And it, and it proceeds more than just that. It's really been a a, a struggle since New York. I mean, I've been somewhat of a nomad since I left San Diego. New York, I didn't build a community because I knew I was only there for a year. I come to Michigan. I intend to build a community and a pandemic hits. And so I've been really two years, two plus years, no spiritual community. And for a quarter of that, if not a little more, no physical in-person sacraments. And so for me, it was just a big struggle. And Easter vigil comes and I got to do the whole Holy Week at the Basilica. And it was beautiful. 
the, the Lord's Supper meal, the Stations of the Cross, Good Friday, Easter Vigil. And I'll just jump to the conclusion and then I'll give you a little bit of context. But when we finished bringing in the new people into the church after the baptism, and it's really hard telling the story as I watch David sit and eat ramen noodles, I think. <laughs> I see him in my Skype camera. I'm trying to be all serious right now. And he's just like, oh, I'm going to eat while Matt talks. This is great. And I'll say what led up to this, but I felt for the first time in a while, I felt Christ say to me deeply on my heart, you are home and I've been with you this whole time. And why do I think that happened? It was right at the moment when after we welcome, after we said, they said their baptismal vows, which also started to get me to cry, the beauty of seeing these people come into the church it was a candlelit evening. And then we as a church say our baptismal vows, renew them. And and the first thing that just hit me was how profound the church said it. It wasn't like, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. All right. How much longer have we gotten this? It was people saying I do with complete intentionality, belting it out. And then we finish and the lights are getting brighter and brighter. And there's trumpets too that in the background that are just going. And we welcome them in like, like they're coming home. And the whole time I'm thinking I'm coming home because I just said to myself, this is the church I want to be a part of. And after not having a place in the community, I saw all these young people. I saw people like putting, like hooting and howling, doing the thing where you whistle with your fingers in your mouth. And it was, it was just so genuine and authentic. And I know when you say it now, I can't do justice to the moment, but after such a terrible two years of like loneliness, spiritually feeling out in the desert, feeling bare, you know, if we go back to one of those beginning letters, maybe letter eight, nine, or 10, one that Dave and I did together, I explained how I felt like I'd come down from the mountain and all my feeling had gone away. And I was trying to figure out what this was. And just knowing that I felt like Jesus was saying, you're at home and I've been with you this whole time bringing you here brought me so much hope. And I've just, it afterwards, I mean, I've kept my holy hour every morning because I was doing it all throughout Lent and I did that pretty faithfully and I've been doing it now. And it just, there's so much optimism and excitement right now in my spiritual life and just personal life. And so I share that because for those who've heard, if you're not new to podcasts, the other stuff, know that if you're in the state that I was in, and you know, it's still a journey out, he's with you. And I, you might not feel it. I didn't feel it. Now I do. And I realize it and I see it. And so that was my Easter, David. And are you done with your dinner? It's lunch for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. It reminds me of something that you and I said back in Mere Christianity, that faith is holding on in the darkness what you've seen in the light. One of my favorite quotes. And sometimes you just have to walk through that period of darkness, but you hold on to the memory of how things were, and you know that one way or another, God is going to make things right again. And I'm glad you brought that up, because that's all I was holding on to, because I could not see the light. And I think I said to you on that podcast, so I'm being pretty consistent, I don't see where this is going. I, why can't I just go back? And now that the light has gone, it's not like one day before things were completely different. It was just the light got shown backwards retroactively and I could finally see more what he was doing and he was present and now gave the hope of where I'm going in the future. That kind of reminds me of Lewis's best book, The Great Divorce, where MacDonald says that uh, heaven and hell are retroactive. That it's when you come back into that place of light, you can look back and see the journey that you've been on and you can start to make sense of it a little bit more. Hmm. And I see your next thing you had in here after this was welcome to all those who received the sacraments this year, or received sacraments this year. I have to say genuinely welcome. We have cookies. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. I've done my monologue. Your turn, David. I don't have a whole lot else to add. 
I, the only thing I was going to say is I was listening back to our episode on fashion and then in the next day or two, I kept coming across quotations about fashion. So I just wanted to list a few of them. The first was from Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who wrote, The truth is the truth, even if nobody believes it, and a lie is still a lie, even if everybody believes it. Mm. And given the books that my wife leaves lying around the house, I also have two Chesterton quotes. <laughs> the first is from The Ball and the Cross. Uh, I'm just going to quote part of it, but I'll put the full thing in the show notes. Christianity is always out of fashion because it is always sane, and all fashions are mild insanities. Those are good. And the other one is from the Illustrated London News. Fallacies do not cease to be fallacies because they have become fashions. I like that as a clever way of saying what Fulton Sheen said. It's a little pithier, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> On to the song of the week. Today's letter deals with the topics of virtue and vice, bravery and cowardice. Listener John Marr suggested The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen. I Don't Want to Be a Hero by Johnny Hates Jazz. And the epic rock anthem Holding Out for a Hero by Bonnie Tyler. In my own list, I came up with Brave by Sarah Bareilles, a great little pick-me-up song. Um, but in a moment of weakness, listeners, I decided to do something nice. I decided to throw Matt a bone. And since we're nearly done with the Screwtape Letters, I thought it was finally time for the song of the week ugh, to be a Taylor Swift song. Today's song of the week is Fearless. David doesn't even know what he just did here with this. You guys won't get this because it's going to be released at a later date from this. She just re-released a Fearless album today. As we are recording it. Did you know that, David? <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, I didn't think so. This is no coincidence. Our blessed mother wanted this to be played here today. And so this is why this is on this episode. Yes. I'm not going to unpack why she re-recorded her album. Um from a legality perspective, but she did, and it was released today at midnight. So well done with that. And we got to read a little quote from that. You take my hand and drag my head first, fearless. Isn't there something there we're going to get to a little bit later? That's a beautiful setup because it talks about we overthink and prep for these things, but why don't we just in the moment have that courage to let God take our hand and drag us head first in? I don't know why, but with you, I dance in a storm in my best dress. Fearless. This is this all fits. This is the perfect song. Okay, I feel kind of dirty now. Let's move on to the quote <laughs> of the week. All right, this is a good quote of the week. Obviously, from this letter, God sees as well as you do, Wormwood, that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. I would put this in the top 10 Lewis quote. If you guys write this down, memorize this. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. Let God take your hand, drag you out, dance in your dress, fearless. That's courage. Now I'm just imagining you in a dress. This is weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. On to the drink of the week. Matt, because it was his birthday, as you guys know from the fashion episode that was released, received four different bottles of scotch varying in taste, quality, and so it's been very fun to taste them. So what we're going to do today is Oban Little Bay. That's what I'm drinking. And I've got a little water in it. Let me smell this on the nose a little bit. It's it's an amber. It's not a deep amber. Actually, it's not a very strong smell. I'm glad you didn't try and do the open mouth thing that Andrew taught you. I was a little afraid you might drown. <laughs> Ooh, I like this. So how I would describe it is 
first and foremost, the peat to non-peat. It's peat, but it's a soft peatness. It's not a Lagavulin aggressive peat, but there is a warmth and a peatiness, but it's smooth and not too strong. And you can absolutely get a little bit of the apple fruity flavor. And there's a slight sweetness, which could be a little bit of fruit, but the tasting notes talk a little bit about a smooth caramel. I would highly recommend this. It's $55 for the bottle, which is reasonable for a bottle of scotch. You know, remember, this isn't wine. It lasts for a while. It's a great scotch if you want to get a light PD. And I am drinking one that we've had before on the show, Doors 12. <laughs> Watching David drink this out of the thing without pouring it into a glass is priceless. I've had a busy day, okay? I know. I've seen you eat like ramen noodles and drink doers out of a bottle. This is great, guys. This is going to be a fun episode. <laughs> well, kick us off with a toast. As always, a gold level supporter. Monique Stam, a new supporter. First of all, we thank you for this deeply. The, the influx of support we've had over the last few months has been a true blessing to this podcast. And so we want to raise a glass to you for helping support this ministry for the gift that you have been with this, we raise a glass that in the moments of weakness that you surrender to God and he provides that virtue of courage and fortitude to overcome any vice or temptation. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that's good stuff. <sighs> so here's my 100 word summary for letter 29, which was first published in The Guardian on the 14th of November, 1941. Given impending air raids, screw tape addresses whether they should tempt the patient to cowardice, to pride by means of courage, but they can't do that because they can't tempt humans to any kind of virtue, or tempt him to hatred of the Germans. They choose this option, muddling the patient's thinking and strengthening his hatred through fear. Unfortunately, fear also runs the risk of awakening the patient, yielding self-knowledge and, even worse, giving rise to repentance. Finally, Screwtape hopes to aggravate the man's shame to produce despair, foster superstitions, and ultimately to catch the man by surprise. There's going to be a point here that I, I am excited to get to where he talks about near the end despair. And so just to tease your listeners, uh, our listeners, it's, it's something I can deeply relate to. And it was uh, a moment I was in, that confession that I've mentioned before. So I'm excited for us to get to that spot. So stick around, guys. So let's go back to the beginning of the letter. <laughs> Today's letter opens with the revelation that German air raids are certain to come to the patient's town. Screwtape wants his nephew to consider their demonic policy. He says, are we to aim at cowardice or at courage with a consequent pride or hatred of the Germans? Screwtape ignores cowardice for the time being. He's going to get back to that later in the letter. He first focuses on the second option, aiming at courage for the sake of the consequent pride that can come out of it. But Screwtape says that this isn't a good choice because our research department has not yet discovered how to produce any virtue. And did you wonder why that was the case? I had some thoughts. They're devils. They can't produce good things. They can only twist good things. They're not creators. They're uh, perverters, destroyers. Yes, that's actually probably the fully technical answer. But I was a little bit thinking about a, a little less technical answer. But virtue requires restoration. If you think of us as we're fallen creatures and our journey in life, as Augustine talks about, is reordering our desires, restoring, renewing. It brings us closer to God as he intended us, our authentic self. And so there's no way they could ever do that because their entire goal is to pull us away from God. Thus, 
any sort of creating a virtue is by definition doing exactly the opposite of what they would want to do too. But we have encountered them using virtues before. And they're quite happy to twist an existing virtue. So it still remains a virtue, but it gets used towards their own end. And actually, throughout this whole season, we've commented on how the devils always have to twist things. And in most of the episodes that we've done up until now, uh, we focus on the actual twisting, the, the turning of something good into something bad, misdirecting it. But in this letter, we get to see very clearly the necessity of the raw material that the devils need in order to actually do something. They need something there. They need some kind of virtue. And, and Screwtape actually gives some great examples. He says, to be greatly and effectively wicked, a man needs some virtue. What would Attila have been without his courage? Or Shylock without self-denial? Now, I'm very tempted to ask you who these people are, Matt. Can you name any of them? Can you tell us, can you tell us about them? David, David, David. I nailed AP World History. Nailed okay. it. Five out Let of five us. on the exam. I know who Attila the Hun is. And also, if I didn't take World History, I would know it be from the uh, Night in the Museum movies. <laughs> Remember that one where he comes back to life? <laughs> uh, my first thought is actually Bill and Ted's most excellent adventure, but sure. Yes, I will admit I don't know who Shylock is. <laughs> okay, so Attila the Hun, he was a warrior and leader of the Hun Empire in the 5th century. And Shylock is a character from William Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice. Uh, basically, he... Pay, he, he loans a bunch of money to a guy called Antonio under the agreement that if Antonio defaults on the loan, Shylock gets to take a pound of flesh as payment. Whoa. Yeah, it's kind of intense. Uh, but circling back to Scritek's main point, he says that we need people to have some virtue in order for them to be truly wicked. Because they, 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 need, they need some kind of dynamism, some kind of life, but they need to point it in the wrong direction and twist it. And let's pause there for a second, because this brings us back to, was it mere Christianity? What I actually think is one of the most profound statements of Lewis's, at least in, in the impact of my life and of bringing hope, to be greatly and effectively wicked, a man needs some virtue, right? He said a cow can't be that bad. But mm -hmm. Satan, obviously, was was it the number one angel up there with Michael or Gabriel yeah. or whatever one's counter cat yeah. in the fallen one? So has the ability to be the most virtuous person, but shows to be the most fallen. And where the hope I think comes in is, I'm guessing, I'm going to take a stab in the dark here, that there are plenty of listeners on the other side of this that have parts of themselves that they feel shame, that they feel mm -hmm. just aren't worthy. And I have that. And the beautiful part is some of those most monstrous parts of who we are. Those moments when we think to ourselves, maybe we look at another person, we have like the most viciously brutal thoughts. No one will ever know them. They stay inside of us. Well, those are the opposite side and can be turned into something good. Some of our darkest parts can become our most light, lighted or lightful, lightest parts. One of those. And so I offer that as an encouragement of hope. So ask yourself, what are the parts that you think are your darkest and offer them up to Christ and recognize that those are nothing to be ashamed of. They're just twisted versions of one of the most beautiful things God might have given you. Yeah, and it's a matter of just discerning what that is. And for that, we need a real injection of prudence because prudence is, is the thing that can manage all of these virtues to make sure that they stay in their proper place. Yes, David has a gift. You guys don't see this because I have my notes on my left and his on the right. Somehow he always takes the last thing I say and connects it perfectly to what he was planning on saying anyways without knowing what I was going to say next. 
I don't know how you do it. <laughs> magic. <laughs> yeah, it is magic, honestly. Yeah, I think we're going to come back to that again later and talk a little bit more about prudence because it is the virtue that you can never have too much of. And I'll say one quick comment there because I was listening to a podcast. When, when you think of, you've asked yourself, how do I know what's right or wrong? How do I know what's good or bad? How do I know my desires are good or bad? Prudence is somewhat very much related to that. The short answer I'll tell you is spend time in the Word, spend time with Christ, spend time doing the practices and spiritual disciplines that turn you into that person where it will just become somewhat part of you. It's hard to be imprudent if you're spending significant amount of times in the Word. If you are hearing sermons at church, if you are reading theological books that are beautiful and speak to truth, beauty, and goodness, and you are doing fasting and um, almsgiving a prayer, if you do all those things, it's pretty hard to be imprudent. And I'm going to focus on one that I'm actually kind of surprised that you didn't go for, because this is normally your favorite, silence. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. Spending some time in silence and looking at the fruit in your life. Yes. So just to recap, the devils can't supply virtue in order to turn it into vice. Virtue can only come from God, which means that God constantly has a foothold in everyone's life and in the patient's life, which the devils can't entirely extricate, which means there's hope for all of us. Now, you'll recall I said that Screwtape presented three strategies, cowardice, courage, and hatred. And we've discovered that courage is, it's a non-starter. So Screwtape now turns to hatred. Is this going to be their policy during the air raids? Hatred of the Germans. And Screwtape notes that they can easily tempt to hatred, particularly during turbulent times of danger, and particularly while the patient is fatigued. However, given that the patient is a Christian, he knows that he shouldn't hate. So the question then is, what should one would do if he tries to tempt him towards hate and the patient resists? And Screwtape suggests that they do what they do best. He writes, muddle him. Let him say that he feels hatred not on his own behalf, but on that of the women and the children. That a Christian is told to forgive his own, not other people's enemies. In other words, let him consider himself sufficiently identified with women and children to feel hatred on their behalf, but not sufficiently identified to regard their enemies as his own, and therefore proper objects of forgiveness. I love this. Mm-hmm. What do you make of it, Matt? Well, I was, the first thing I was going to say is we see this in modern society constantly. This has to be one of the most prevalent things I see, unfortunately, in our bitter divide in this country, that we so often people will hate groups and individuals in the name of some sort of cause. And I think that's really the same application of this. And so I'm defending this group, therefore I can hate this group that's opposed to it. And that's a really dangerous thing. What you need to hate is injustice. Now, you can hate the injustice, but to raise a group up that you think is having injustice against it or and then hate the group that you think is doing that injustice and you're the one doing it on their behalf is a very dangerous thought. And it doesn't make the distinctions that Lewis taught us in mere Christianity yes. under the common phrase of hate the sin, love the sinner. And in that same chapter... Lewis says that forgiveness is one of the most unpopular of Christian doctrines. He says that everyone says it's a lovely idea right up until the point they actually have to do it themselves. And at that point, they start howling with pain. Lewis says, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery. We ought to hate them. Not one word of what has been said about them needs to be unsaid. 
but it does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves, being sorry that the man should have done such things, and hoping, if it is any way possible, that somehow, sometime, somewhere, he can be cured and made human again. And remember our litmus test on this. I have the perfect one for you guys. David and I mentioned this in season one. If you are a Republican and Joe Biden does something great, do you rejoice? Are you pleased with that? Or are you just so hateful towards him? And if you're a a, um, Democrat and Donald Trump was president and he did something good, can you actually celebrate that? Are you happy to see goodness coming out of the person that's in office that's completely opposed to your views? If the answer is no, you're, you're hating the person. And you're not showing this. And I thought when we talked about that that first time, it's a good litmus test. And a tough one. (laughs) And actually, I noticed something even in your own language. You said someone with whom you're completely opposed. I don't think there actually exists a person who is completely opposed to everything that I stand for. There will always be some commonalities. We all ultimately want people to flourish. You remember there was this politician once, and this actually could just be a made-up quote, but I always liked it. Politician says, if you agree with... Nine out of 12 things I say, vote for me. If you agree with 12 out of 12 things I say, go seek an insane asylum. Because we just don't, <laughs> we don't agree with everything. And so that's just going to be, which works and vice versa. You know, with the opposing party, you probably disagree with nine out of 12 things, but there's probably three that you do agree with. And if you disagree with 12 out of 12, probably should seek an insane asylum. <laughs> but I think the point is well made. If you can't see good things, if you can't recognize them as good when they happen, when they're produced by someone that you don't like, that's not a good state to be in. Lewis says, you're wanting black to be a little blacker. And he says, if you give that thought its head, you'll end up in a universe of pain, misery, and thinking about everybody, including your neighbors, God, and probably even yourself. Love it. Screwtape transitions by saying that hatred is best paired with courage's counterpoint, fear. So hatred of the Germans, if, if the patient's battling that, start ratcheting, ratcheting up the fear. And that then transitions us into the next option. Because if you recall, Screwtape gave us three options at the beginning of this letter. Cowardice, courage, or hatred. We've discounted courage, we've spoken about hatred, and now Screwtape is going to zoom in on the question of cowardice. And he explains that most virtues have some level of pleasure to them. Except this one, except cowardice. But he does point out that a frightened man is likely to make himself feel better by nurturing his hatred. Screwtape says that the more he fears, the more he will hate. And hatred is also a great anodyne for shame. To make a deep wound in his charity, you should therefore first defeat his courage. I do want to point, this is a small side note, but one thing I have learned in my own personal self-exploration in reading kind of psychology books Fear is a root of a lot of issues in our lives and a lot of hatred. And it's amazing whenever you hear someone respond in a certain way, pretty viscerally, pretty angrily, pretty aggressively, there's a fear that's really at the core. And if you want a little tip for managing relationships, I would assume this would help in marriage too. When there's a fight and an argument, or animosity or anger, aggressiveness, try to get to the core of the fear. If the other is yelling at you, what are they afraid of? Are they afraid of losing you? Are they afraid of not being worthy? Are they afraid of change? But fear tends to be at the core of a lot of things. And so that's just something, 
I, I don't practice what I preach in the moment. Someone viscerally comes at me. I tend to viscerally go back double, but um, if I'm emotionally controlled and thinking straight, this is what I would do. <laughs> well, when you're afraid, it's very hard to think clearly. But when you feel safe and secure, you can reason about things with, uh, with much more rationality, with a clearer head. Yes. And that's why I always give great advice that I never follow myself. <laughs> so Screwtape wants to discourage courage. But that's problematic because he says that cowardice is very tricky. He says that the devils can often make people proud of their vices, but they can't do that with cowardice because God allows calamities such as war and natural disasters. And these things show, they reveal the necessity and the beauty of courage. And as a result, cowardice is the one remaining vice about which humans genuinely feel shameful. And not only that, he says that there's a real danger in inspiring the cowardice because it produces self-knowledge and self-loathing, which can then lead to, uh-oh, repentance and humility. And Screwtape is actually rather bitter that during World War I, which was the war that Lewis himself was in, he said that during that war, thousands of humans, by discovering their own cowardice, discovered the whole moral world for the first time. In peace, we can make many of them ignore good and evil entirely. In danger, the issue is forced upon them in the guise to which even we cannot blind them. And he ends by saying that this indeed is one of the enemy's motives for creating a dangerous world a world in which moral issues really come to the point. Spot on. I mean, I was, as, as even when you're mentioning that line, it's like the one vice that you can't find pleasure with. Let's think of greed. You can find pride in greed. You can be like, yeah, look, I, I, let's say you're someone who successful drives for money and you can find some pride in that lust. Let's say you've experienced a lot of lust. You've done s- sexual conquest and you're boom, you can get validation. Like you can, the world tells you a lot of these things are actually good, but never have I ever heard someone say cowardice is a good thing. Unless they tried to flip it and talk about it as like humility and look at him or her just kind of being quiet. But that's not cowardice. True cowardice, no one, no one builds that up. I would say it's never identified as cowardice. I would say it's more often touted as intelligence, smartness, being savvy, being streetwise. The the example that came to my mind was A Man for All Seasons. Mm. It's been years since I've read it, but I recall that at the very end of the play, uh, one of the characters who has survived, who compromised his faith and signed the bill uh, and thereby escaped getting his head cut off, he says something along the lines of, to the audience, he says, are you breathing? It's nice, isn't it? And he says something along the lines of, it is better to be a live rat than a dead lion. So really, there, he's praising his own cowardice, Mm -hmm. but he's not identifying it as that. He's trying to put it forward that he is just smarter than the chump who died for his principles. You know, the other thing in here that I thought Lewis was really correct on, and it reminded me of mere Christianity. Remember when he says, if you really want to figure out your need and dependence on God, and I think this was in the chapter on faith, try your best to live a good life and realize how bad you are, how much you'll fail. If you never really try, you can always assume you could have done it, but you never know. You were never tested is his main point. And then once you're tested and you fail, you realize, holy cow, I need God's grace to do this. I mean, there's something here too of the 
the cowardice, wait until you really try to fight good and evil. And I can attest this in my own life. You realize, holy cow, I am weak. Because I felt like I could fight mm-hmm. good and evil pretty well in San Diego because I had a community around me. It wasn't me fighting it. It was circumstantially, I was in a place where, to be blunt, there wasn't a lot of evil coming my way. So I, I thought I was doing good pretty easily out of my sheer willpower. And in reality, it was because it was just, there wasn't a lot of evil coming my way. And then go back to 2019, 2020, New York pandemic. Now I have no community, no good circumstances and a lot of evil coming my way. And holy cow, I was weak as heck. I was a coward in certain circumstances. And so, yeah, I, I also fully think Lewis is spot on with that next point. This puts me in mind of the problem of pain, where Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think self-knowledge and knowledge of our own weaknesses has a very, a very similar sort of effect. I can fully agree with that. And as a single male, and if any females are listening to this, I just went down there in their book because I realized how cowardice and weak I am. But how much you've gone up because you're so humble. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the case until about two seconds ago. You're welcome. <laughs> By Jove, I'm humble. Okay. So, Scrooge has been talking a lot about cowardice, and he now talks about its counterpoint, fortitude, which is our quote of the week. He says that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. And then he goes on and says that a chastity or an honesty or a mercy which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. Pilate was merciful till it became risky. And Pilate here, of course, refers to Pontius Pilate, who was the fifth prefect of Judea, 26 to 36 AD, and who's best known for being pressured by a mob to sanction the execution of a rather popular Jewish rabbi. I want us to pause here because sometimes with pausing and expanding on a little bit, it hits at home. That quote right there, Pilate was merciful until it was risky. One of the more profound quotes, think about that as a listener, maybe even pause this podcast, because I think about this in my own life. There are certain practices, feelings, whether it's gossip, anger, different vices that I'm working on. And honestly, when times are good, it's really easy for me not to do those things. And I I start to get a false sense of like virtue. And then it becomes you're tired, you're beaten down, you just had a terrible day at work and you feel like you deserve this. It's like in that moment is when I then start switching completely. You know what? I deserve this. I deserve to feel good. You know, I just want to (laughs) order my cheeseburger, have three Bacardi Cokes and watch a movie and pick up because I want to numb whatever feeling I'm having right now. But then put me the next morning and my thought is completely different of like, oh, I feel so at peace and so centered and so in tune with Christ (laughs) and all I want to do is good in the world. But then you get those moments when it's really tough and when that's when you need the courage and the fortitude. That's why I was so grateful David gave me a Catholic woodworker thing. I actually keep it in my belt every day. And it's like a 10 day, it's 10 uh, beads, prayer beads. You don't have to use it for the rosary. You could use it for like a divine mercy chaplet, but I do it for the rosary. And it's not a silver bullet, but whenever I'm struggling, I will at least tell myself in this moment, go for a quick walk for five minutes and pray 10 of these and see how you feel afterwards. You'd be surprised how much that kind of cures whatever anger, feeling, emotion, lust, desire you have. Um, sometimes you still come back, you're still feeling it and it's like, dang, and then you give in, but, um, it helps. Or you go back out again and try again. Uh, That would be the prudent thing to do. (laughs) Yeah. Fortitude is what needs to kick in when we're under pressure. 
when we're not in ideal situations, when we're tired. You and I often use analogies comparing the spiritual life to the gym. And this is, and the analogy here would be that your form is perfect until you start getting tired. And then you start getting sloppy. And yes. you then have to make a you have to make a decision. You either keep the form and ensure your long term good, <laughs> or you get sloppy and cause yourself an injury, or you just give up. It's like I've done enough push ups for the day. We're done. Yeah, yeah, it's a good way to put it. You commit in the beginning of the workout, and there's always within a workout. I had it today. I did a twenty minute like advanced core workout. Yes, I have a classic millennial Peloton subscription. And <laughs> did my my core workout, and it's intense. I use weights, and uh, about ten to twelve minutes into it, and it always happens. I'm like, oh, this is probably good enough. You know, I probably <laughs> my, my core burns, and you have to recommit and say, no, I'm going to twenty minutes. I'm finishing this, and I did that today, and I finished. Or another comparison that popped into my head. When your alarm goes off in the morning and you set it the night before when you're feeling all hopeful, it's like, yes, I'm going to set it for six. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go get some stuff done. And when the alarm starts going off, that's when you start renegotiating. <laughs> six, David, weak sauce. How about five? <laughs> well, since fortitude is so essential and since you just called me weak, um, <laughs> fortitude is one of the cardinal virtues which Lewis outlines in Mere Christianity. So, Matt. What are the other three? Oh, David. Um, justice. Mm -hmm. Humility. Mm -mm. Dang it. Prudence. Yep. T take another sip of your drink. See if it inspires you. Courage. No, that's fortitude. <laughs> Temperance. <laughs> Temperance. <laughs> okay, you shouldn't have said take another sip of your drink and see if it expires you. <laughs> Did you think of that when you told me to do that? The fact that yeah. taking another sip of yeah. your drink is kind of intemperate. Dude, I don't know if you know this. I'm super smart. Yeah, I'm starting <laughs> to realize that. Dang. I used to think I was super smart. And I started talking with David. You still have a six pack than me. I had a friend um, who told me, <laughs> it's kind of funny, um, who listened to podcasts, but then knew, got to know me off the podcast and said, you know, with David, you're just, you kind of play the role of the funny, happy-go-lucky, you know, not super serious, lighthearted. David's like the serious, super intelligent. I kind of honestly self-deprecate constantly on here. And then in person talking to me, it was like completely the opposite. Um, I was like, huh. So you I also have all of my faults. Beautiful. I completely do. <laughs> but you are stronger-willed than me, I think, which is why I've taken a different role. Well, we still got a little bit more of this letter to get through before the hour's up. So let's push on. As I mentioned before, the consequences of our sin are often a mercy themselves from God. He, it's like he lets us reap what we sow. And when we do that, we get to see the falsity of sin, that it just doesn't deliver what it promises. This in particular is why Screwtape is nervous about inspiring cowardice. Because he says it's, it's possible to lose as much as we gain by making the man a coward. He may learn too much about himself. And Screwtape suggests that rather than chloroforming the shame, which comes from cowardice, uh, instead of trying to numb it, they should aggravate it. And from there, be able to produce despair. And Screwtape says this would be a great triumph. It would show that he had believed in and accepted the enemy's forgiveness of other sins only because he himself did not fully feel their sinfulness. 
that in respect of the one vice which he really understands in its full depth of dishonor, he cannot seek nor credit the mercy. What do you make of this, Matt? Well, it hits home. That confession I had a few months back, it may be a little longer now, that's brought me to tears as well. One of the things I confessed at the end was despair. And I was feeling an immense amount of shame of the propensities of my heart for evil, I guess would be the way of phrasing it in a euphemism. (laughs) And the priest spoke to me of God's mercy. And this was that one where he said, I want you to know I'm praying for you. And I can relate to this. I guess I must have thought before that, just so you guys know, because actually this didn't make a lot of sense to me, that one sentence of accepted the enemy's forgiveness of other sins only because they're sinfulness, not fully feeling it. I now get it as David said it. Essentially like I, these other, I've been sinning plenty of times before that moment, but never felt despair or that immense amount of shame, clearly because rather than actually realizing they were sinning in crisis, forgive me, I was kind of belittling the sin is kind of what that's saying. Mm. This ain't that sinful. And then this, these sins, the sins that were in my heart in this moment felt like now I've hit the threshold where this is just, I'm too far gone would be the way to say yeah. it. And I, I didn't grasp the fact that Christ's mercy in that moment was, was fully present in the same way the sins before, and they were bad in his eyes then. And this is just as much, but is also equally the same amount of mercy is pouring into me. And it took a priest in confession to help me see that. Yeah, it's too easy for us to reach a point, the point of repentance, when we see what we've done truly and to despair, which, as you point out, that's actually a sin. Because if, if you think about it, what you're saying is that God isn't, is too small for my sin. My sins are too powerful. God is too impotent to do anything about them. This is beyond his capacity. And I would say modern Christians, we're not used to talking of despair in those terms. And I do want to make a distinction between this and chemical imbalances and mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's when you think that nobody can help me, not even God, that, that's straight from the lips of screw tape. And it's not true. And I'm glad you brought that up because I... I actually had a little bit of that written down and forgot it. I felt that, and what what I felt was this. I understand psychology enough to know neural pathways and neuroplasticity and the fact that these things, as you ingrain habits, those neural pathways, synopses are actually forming. In six months and you have a habit, you know, there's like the 20-day marker, 21-day marker, there's a three-month marker and a six-month. At six months, things are ingrained. So I'm coming out of the pandemic with some really bad habits and I'm literally starting to self-talk myself. What you just said, the Satan thing, this was a despair that, wow, I'm too far gone. I've, I mean, I've crossed the threshold. This is gonna be way too hard. I can't come out of this. And then, as you said, I didn't believe in the resurrection. I didn't believe in Romans 8, 11, where it says the same power that rose Christ from the dead is inside of me. Didn't believe it because if I believed it, I would have not had that despair. I would have recognized that it doesn't matter that I just descended into hell almost I will be risen again and he can restore that through the cross and the resurrection, but didn't believe it. I was like, well, neural pathways are fired. I'm screwed and it's done. And it's a dangerous spot to be in because as we all know, that's the space that you're in to then numb yourself and do more negative things. And again, I'm telling myself that and I'm thinking, oh, well, now I'm just screwed. I'm gone. This is going to be a downward spiral. 
and it's just too late. That's the despair I felt for a brief moment in time. And that's why in a lot of the canticles that we find in the Bible, God is praised just for who he is, because it reminds us that he is greater than we could possibly imagine. St. Paul says in one of his letters, and now to him who can do infinitely more than we could ever ask or imagine. And as you say, this is, this is the same God which raised Jesus from the dead. This is the same God that made everything. And in comparison to everything, I think God can take care of your sin. Notice that one thing, some a practical tip. Speak to someone about it if you're feeling it. In my case, I went to a priest for confession. Not everyone is a part of the denomination that does um, formal confessions like that. Confess it to a friend. Share it with a friend. Share it in your community. Share it with a loved one. Someone who can essentially, what happened in that moment, if I had to quantify it, countered the lies of Satan. Reminded mm-hmm. me that that is a lie because the lie got caught hold of my head. So that would be the biggest thing I would say. And the second minor thing would be, despite all of that despair, I did constantly attempt to come back to, as David said, I held on to what I knew to be true in the light. So I was still, honestly, it was kind of going through the motions, but I was still going through the motions, attempting, knowing that going to mass, knowing that praying the rosary, knowing that trying to do this, even if I'm not doing it to the level I want to, is the right decision to be making here. And I was still constantly attempted. And so those would be the two tips I would give if you're in a moment like that. And I would just add, go listen to The Voice of Truth by Casting Crowns. I, com- I, I know it's a song I recommend all the time, but that's, that's a song that reminds you that there's one voice you need to listen to. And any voice that says that your sin is too big for God isn't a good one. Or One Step Away by Casting Crowns. Incredible song. We're all that's one step away. I am. That, I actually have that on my Christian playlist. I listen to it almost every single day. It literally says, even when we think we're too far gone, we're usually just one step away. Well, let's wrap up this letter. Screwtape ends with a bit of a how-to in regards to temptation to cowardice. He says, the main point is that precautions have a tendency to increase fear. Before we go on, Matt, what do you think he means by precautions? I would imagine it's it's worried about doing something. You take the necessary precautions. So you put procedures in place, safeguards. They could be mental preparations or they could be actual physical, tangible precautions you're putting in place to avoid something but it can also make something bigger than it is. In this particular context, because if you remember at the beginning of the letter, we found out that there's an air raid heading the patient's way. I think of the precautions would be things like carrying a gas mask, building an air raid shelter, putting up blackout curtains. This line in particular, I think, is also very appropriate given that we've gone through a pandemic, that we have to adjust our behavior accordingly, that we're having to wipe down more surfaces, that we're having to wear masks. The doing these things in and of themselves starts stoking our fear because it's reminding us of a danger that is out there. But Screwtape says that the problem with these sorts of precautions that normally inspire fear is when they become routine. Because when they become routine, fear starts to diminish. Uh, think of when the first time, very first time you went on a plane and you saw the video about how to put on a life jacket and where the exits were. Don't know about you guys, but I remember paying very close attention each time I came on a plane to uh, to 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 the demonstration, and it made me nervous. It it made me fearful of flying because here were these people reminding me of all the bad things that could go wrong. However, that nervousness gradually diminishes. It when it becomes routine, it's like I know where the life jackets are. I know how to get out of the plane. I know what will happen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
And very similar with regards to the pandemic. When you're used to just wearing a mask day in, day out, that you're used to wearing one when you go to the store, you start to forget about it. And as a result, the fear starts to decrease. The analogy I would give here, and uh, heck, I always get a little bit too personal on these things, but um, I even had this with a priest I remember a while back uh, with you know, guys and girls struggle with lust, pornography, masturbation. So I keep covenant eyes on and I've got locked down across my devices. I just can't even look at this stuff to call those precautions and they're good things. And I mean, I don't actually try to, to be honest, because I don't want to figure out if I could find a loophole, but I just can't find a loophole. But there have been stages in my life in the past where you get a new device and you haven't put it on that new device yet. And temptation's roaring. You're kind of like, oh, I'm going to put this on in a couple of days. You're like, oh, but this sounds kind of fun. And, and you give into temptation, honestly. I've gone to the priest and he kind of pointed out once to me that he goes, you know, this is great. Have those things. You know, They help break the habit. But you still haven't actually built up. They almost give a soft, uh, a, a false sense of security. And when they're gone, where's the will there still? Because honestly, I don't even have to will not looking at pornography. I just can't do it. <laughs> About as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it's not like belittling those things, but it's trying to make an example here of how I've put these precautions and safeguards in place. That I, I honestly, I don't even think about the fight. And if there's ever a time when the fight's there, honestly, I haven't really been trained for that too much because I don't need to. So Screwtape has said that precautions can breed fear, but when those precautions become routine, the fear tends to to decrease. So Screwtape suggests that it would be very fruitful to have the patient always think about what he can do to make himself safer, to always be thinking that, to always be planning. And he says that this will give rise to superstitions. And he says the point is to keep him feeling that he has something other than the enemy and courage the enemy supplies to fall back on. So that what was intended to be a total commitment to duty becomes honeycombed all through with little unconscious reservations. The point of all of this is to make him think that, one, he can rely on himself, and two, that the worst won't ever really come to the worst. And when that's the case, then he can be caught off guard. Screwtape says... At the moment of real terror, rush it out into his nerves and muscles, and you may get the fatal act done before he knows what you're about. For remember, the act of cowardice is all that matters. The emotion of fear is in itself no sin, and though we enjoy it, does us no good. So Screwtape makes a crucial distinction that I actually wish he had made a little bit earlier, that fear itself isn't sinful. That's usually just a natural response to something that scares you. What Screwtape is trying to get him to do here is to have that act of cowardice because then he's got a really good foothold for lots of other games. Well, and that perfectly sums up practically what I described with the Covenant Eyes. It caught, caught me by surprise and wasn't ready for it in some of those moments in my past. And you know, you're, you're, it's, it just hits you and you don't even realize what Screwtape just did to you because of your false sense of security. And I think that's a good note to end on. So, the fun part, guys, let's unscrew a little bit of the screw tape. Let's unwind this. I'll kick us off. I like to, I got a few. That's it. Do pray <laughs> for the virtue of fortitude. I think of this as forgiveness. Remember how Lewis talks about praying for forgiveness and the importance of that? Fortitude's grace. And yes, there's the little things like go run a mile, run two miles, run three miles, start with small sense of fortitude, but also just start praying for it. Holy Spirit will show up. I had the same do. 
I added a couple of points. I said, it will be necessary to be a virtuous person. And I also put it in its negative form. Do not abandon virtue when it is inconvenient or risky. Hmm. And think of it like, just add it, think of it like weightlifting. Yeah, if you if you actually have these moments where you do fail and you're recognizing they're happening every couple of weeks and it's when you're vulnerable, guess what? When you start weightlifting or you start running or any sort of exercising, the first three to four months are kind of brutal. Your body's still adjusting. Fortitude's going to be the same thing. It takes time. You'll build up. I put very vividly, do not despair. It's as simple as that. I mean, there's techniques we've talked about in this episode of how you can fight that with community, but just try to fight it all to yourself. Don't have that negative self-talk and know it's from Satan. I had some similar ones that said, do not give in to despair. Your sin is not greater than God's mercy. Hmm. Do not rely upon yourself, but trust in God. My final one was just don't let fear turn into a vice. Obviously, a lot of this episode was about hatred but and anger, but fear can turn into any vice. Just recognize when fear is creeping up and name it as it is and push it to the side. Okay, I had a, a, I had a few extra on top of that. Do you remember that virtue can be twisted into vice? This is why we need prudence. Do watch your temper when you're tired. Do not rationalize away hateful thoughts. Christ commands us to love our enemies. Do know yourself. Remember, Screwtape spoke about self-knowledge being very dangerous. And lastly, do beware of fear, as it often feeds hatred. And I reformulated this warning in a couple of different ways. Firstly, fear is the path to the dark side, as Obi-Wan Kenobi said. And as Master Yoda said, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. I have seen those movies, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Well done, David. (laughs) Well, let's wrap things up. Uh, First of all, listeners, uh, please listen to the end of the show, because after the sign-off, we're going to be playing the trailer of the new podcast from Premier Christian Radio. This is the new C.S. Lewis podcast with Alistair McGrath and Ruth Jackson. And if you check out our YouTube channel today, you'll see an interview between myself and Ruth talking about their new podcast. So I, I fail litmus tests that we bring up on this podcast all the time. This one being, do I celebrate another podcast on C.S. Lewis calling themselves the C.S. Lewis podcast with the same amount of joy I would if we were it? No, I don't. <laughs> Listeners, please pray for that. <laughs> that's the right response please do and I, I know you listen i know you listen to this podcast and you think man david is a jerk but you know i want this man to reach some holiness you know yeah i need to hear matt does have competitive pride <laughs> well here's my more gratitude side we'd like to thank our top tier supporters and this list continues to grow and we've, we have, we want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, but the ones in our top one, Kay, Monique, Paul, Gillis, Jake, Stephen, Chris, John, James, Kate, Rowdy, Matt, and Jeff. You guys are fantastic. And most of you we've talked to, and there's a few new ones here that I can't wait to talk to because every single one of these I have walked away calling David like after we hang up our video chat. That was great. <laughs> And as always a reminder, we've got the merch available on our website. Check that out. Dave is working on a great update. Pintswithjack.com. And I'm very pleased to say that the Pint with Jack's mugs are currently in production. And David sent me a few of the ones and the ones we chose I'm super excited about. And we'll explain how you can get one of those in the future. And please definitely go rate and subscribe uh, on different avenues, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Don't forget our YouTube channel. We still only have like 
a sixth of you guys or seventh of you subscribe to that. Does produce content separate from this. So come on, get your button gear. And on that note, please join us again next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Do you think C.S. Lewis would have an Instagram profile? Um, His friends might set one up, (laughs) but I'm not sure Lewis himself would. I think that Lewis is always receding into the background. Lewis is very, very clear about what does a good author do, he said, back in the 1920s. says, a good author does not say, look at me. He says, look at what I've seen. And for Tolkien, um, we are almost designed by God to tell stories. And Tolkien began to help Lewis see that really Christianity told a story, the story of God, the story of Christ, our story. And Lewis suddenly began to realize how everything hung together how everything made sense and that if he thought of Christianity as a story a true myth which makes sense of every other story we tell then that makes perfect sense and he writes to Arthur Greaves in enormous excitement this is it I've discovered it. it it's right it's exciting and that's a very important point and maybe Lewis might have got there on his own but actually Tolkien was the catalyst I first read the Chronicles of Narnia when I was about 22. <laughs> I have to say, I actually rather enjoyed them, um, maybe because I'm very childish, I don't know. <laughs> I think for Lewis, there were, there were a number of objections. One was um, that he felt that science had eliminated the conceptual space once occupied by God. Another was he thought there was a sort of um, similarity of form between Christianity and pagan myths, which meant they were all inventions. And then thirdly, there was this anxiety about suffering in the world. So those were three major concerns for him. But as his story of faith shows, he was able to overcome all of those. If someone is thinking, how do I begin to defend the Christian faith? Have you got any advice that you would give? I would begin by saying, let me tell you why I find Christianity so compelling and exciting. And then I would tell them. And everyone listening to this podcast will be able to do exactly the same thing. And in doing that, you're telling your own story and your audience will be interested. They may want to raise objections, but they're going to hear you first. They want to hear the positive, then they'll raise questions. The problem is otherwise you just raise questions and people don't know why those questions are significant. You need to explain why this matters, why it's so exciting, and then deal with the questions. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath.